So thanks for doing the song. Um, I kind of asked him to do that song a while back because uh, the little series here I've been doing this month has been called Stand. It's based on some doctrinal foundational things. So first week, a couple of weeks ago, we did Does God Exist? And sort of an idea of how do we know God exists. And then last week we talked about sacred text, the Bible, and its sort of nature. And then this week we're talking about prayer. And, uh, and then uh, I'm done here for a little bit. So thanks for doing the song. Uh, very cool. It's sort of one of those, um, I, just, it, I don't know if you, this kind of fits in with prayer because um, that song is one of those that just kind of comes unbidden uh, in my mind when I'm out in the yard or something like that, mowing the grass or whatever, you know, driving along and like, on Christ a solid rock I stand. It's got a little white man over by rock and rolling, you know. So uh, anyway, I kind of get all pumped up about it. So um, anyway, um, so thanks for doing that. And um, kind of a classic for me anyhow. So we are talking about prayer. And um, let's begin with this. To be human is to pray. And I don't make that up because 95% of the world, when surveyed, says they pray. Atheists pray, not as much as everybody else, but they still pray. You could always ask, like, well, what are they praying to? Like, it doesn't matter. Everyone prays. Prayer is human. We can do bad prayer. We can do good prayer. But everyone prays. To be in prayer, at least for us Christians, is to be in relationship with God. To be in prayer is to be in relationship with God. That is the essence then of the relationship besides all the theological stuff. It is the personal part. So it would therefore be smart that we would get good at prayer as opposed to just limping along like everybody else in the world. We should become professional prayers, if you want to put it that way, and become better. And when the church prays, we turn to the Bible and the Bible's own prayers, which is right there in the middle of the book, and it is the Psalms. The Psalms, the Psalms, the Psalms are the Bible's prayer book. There's 150 of them, depending on what denomination you're in. Ours is 150. And uh, the Psalms, the word Psalms, by the way, just means songs, as in Psalms versus songs. And, um, and many of the Psalms then are very old. Uh, some go back to David. David wrote some. We're going to do one of his here in just a moment. David is king of Israel in 961 um, uh, BC, if you want to call it that. And uh, so this is like a thousand years before Jesus Christ. And we are still praying those same psalms. So the psalms are very old. They're very human. And they're very natural. When Jesus prayed, he prayed the psalms. That's what you do because they had them memorized. And so this morning, I want to teach us just how important the Psalms are, and they are to our Christian life, as well as just really all of life. So over the past few years, I've really begun to lean into the Psalms. Um, I think when I was younger, I did not lean into the Psalms as much. I was always buried in Romans and Galatians, and, uh, and then over time, the Psalms began to make sense because I kind of wore out all my young prayers, and pretty soon I was just left with the written prayers in the Bible. Like, maybe that's the way things go, or maybe that's just me. So, let's think of the Psalms then in three categories. Three categories that I did not make up. Three categories made famous by Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann, sometimes it's just fun to say these theologians' names, Brueggemann. It just sounds kind of cool. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, arguably the most prominent Old Testament theolo theologian still alive today. He's in his 80s, I checked. Um, 
And Brueggemann said there are three categories there is in the Psalms. There's orientation, disorientation, and then new orientation. And they're not necessarily evenly split up, but about 50 of them or so would fall into the middle there, a disorientation. So let's begin then with orientation and understand the natures of this. And to begin, we, we do this. Orientation. Build a temple. Build a monument. Be, oh, I'm about to knock it down. Be awesome. Chutta. Yeah. Oh. Oh, thank you. I've practiced my whole life. <laughs> psalm 8, a psalm of David. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of, because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you, you care for them. Yet, you have made them a little lower than the God and crowned them with glory and honor. And it goes on a little bit. All of it sounds like it's all positive. It is up and to the right. It is established. It is awesome. There's no where are you, God, or anything like this. It's all looking at nature and the stars, and we subdue our enemies, and the whole thing's awesome. These orientation psalms are songs of well-being, of stability, that all is right. There's power and strength. Of course, you have to admit that David is a king, so it's all looking good for him, and he's writing about it and singing. The cool thing is he's actually, imagine this, a politician giving praise to God. Okay, um, nonetheless, King David has looked around. He says, it is all good because God is good. God is large and in charge, and things are good because of God. And you can always then tell when you're reading the Psalms, look for this feature. You can tell a psalm of orientation because invariably they'll go to nature and creation. They'll start talking about nature and creation. So, uh, and we have that right here in this. He starts talking about the stars and the heavens, which is the highest heaven they can even think of. And uh, so he, David starts talking about that sort of thing. Look for it in the Psalms. They'll start talking about nature in there every time. We do the same thing. You know, we go out to nature. And if you're tuned in and dialed in a little bit, you start thinking like, there is a God. And I am small and this is cool. I've been to the Grand Canyon a few times. I've hiked it twice in my younger days, not recently. Uh, let me just tell you, for those who are contemplating hiking the Grand Canyon, four hours from the South Rim down to the Colorado River, 10 hours back up to the South Rim. Got it? <laughs> Be prepared. So, um, yeah, all of us Americans, uh, we look at creation and we see a wonderful, beautiful world. This land is your land, this land is my land, from sea to shining sea, and we go off, and America the beautiful, and we think it's great, we look at the Grand Canyon, we conquered it, we own it, let's preserve it, let's take care of it, you got to get a permit to walk it, camp in it, and all this kind of stuff. But you know, about an hour downstream from the South Rim is a little village of the Havasupai people, the Havasu. And these days, the Havasu are not doing too well. I've been there, beautiful place. 
But it's not doing well. These days, gangs have taken over. And there's drugs and there's guns and violence. And you can't go there. It's all gone bad. Of course, it didn't just start. It's been bad for the Havasupai people, admittedly, as we would all know, when the white man came. And so, life falls apart. And it happens to us. And your great temple falls down. And that's the way life works. Things don't always go great and up and to the right, do they? And we end up like the Havasu, who are just exactly like the Jewish exiles in 700, wondering where their God is and crying out to God. And Jesus, because he prays the Psalms, is on the cross on Good Friday, crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? Yeah, the problem with the well-ordered life we all strive for is that it's really hard to lay hold of, isn't it? You can't keep everything perfect forever. Life, <laughs> life is messy. Life's unbearable. Life, life is hard. Anybody who sells different, says something different is selling something. The Psalms give voice to humanity's deepest pain. Just five Psalms after that wonderful orientation Psalm of Psalm 8 comes Psalm 13. Disorientation. Orientation, disorientation. And here's how it goes. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul? I have sorrow in my heart all day long. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. And my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Not much creation in this psalm, is there? Not much Grand Canyon going on. Sometimes enemies don't have to have clubs and guns. Sometimes enemy, the enemy is, is, is within depression and addiction and loneliness and sadness. And the disorientation psalms address the God who, as one who is of sorrow and acquainted with grief. That God. In these psalms, God does not appear to be in control. And so the psalmist is crying out. And the Jews, the Hebrew people, spent some six, seven hundred years before Jesus being oppressed. Being oppressed. Poverty, slavery, disease, war, enemies, death, pandemics. All are here, right here in the Psalms. Right here. Here's the most important thing to know about the prayers of the Psalms. They all belong. They all belong to us. They all belong in life. All of the Psalms express everything in, in our, everything that you and I experience. They're not all cleaned up and polished. They're not just, just Psalms of orientation. They're Psalms of disorientation when it all falls down. They're right there. We would do well to own the Psalms within our heart and soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, Lord, how long? 
because they're right there. You know, not everybody wanted to buy into the Psalms of disorientation. Uh, John Wesley, the famous preacher, hymn writer, founder of the Methodist, he excluded, took out 50 of the Psalms. Nearly all were laments of sadness, you know. Wesley said, quoting, Wesley said they were highly improper for the mouths of Christian congregation. No, 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 John. I don't think so. I don't think Wesley would like Lakeland. We're a little too real for here. We think all 150 Psalms belong. We've been there, done that, and we got the scars. And so the Psalms make sense to most of us around here. They all belong. You clean up your prayer life, you begin lying to yourself and God. You keep it real, and you'll keep God close. The Psalms never go to a cleaned up place when they're in disorientation. So uh, what do you do? When life falls apart, what do the Psalms do? What's, what goes on? How do you get out? This is what the Psalms do. Yeah, we need them. You build an altar. Out of the rebel, you build an altar. That's just what the exiles did. When life falls apart, you build an altar. You pile it together, and your life becomes a fragrant aroma to God. The good, the bad, and the ugly. New orientation. Orientation, disorientation, new orientation. So here in the pile... This apparent hopeless situation, the prayer goes up of your life to new orientation. And the psalmist says in Psalm 43, then, then, in the midst of all this, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight, and I will praise you with the harp, my God, my God. And you can picture then David taking his harp and sitting, so to speak, on the edge of the rubble at the altar and playing a song. Out of the ruin of rebel, what people have done is build an altar out of the fallen pieces of our lives. What we find in the Psalms is people begin to remember that God has always been there. What you do at the altar is you tell the tales. So much of the Old Testament is retelling stories of when things went really, really bad. The prophets get in there and say like, well, I'm going to tell you why it went bad. I'm going to tell you what you need to do if you can pay attention. But over and over and over throughout Scripture, what you find are tons and tons of stories about when it went really bad and what people did. And they built an altar and they worshiped God in the midst of their pain and they found a new orientation. We find people remembering and a lot of prayer and a lot of the spiritual life is remembrance. God hasn't forgotten them, they, re they remember. God's still there. God is like a mother who cannot forget her child. And though we sin and rebel, and though all hell breaks loose, still God is with us. 
And the people begin to tell their stories, and they find out the stories, even though they're terrible stories, are actually what makes them human, and, and it turns out to be a good story. And that God took care of them and gave them a home, and God fed them, and the stories turn into Thanksgiving, and the Thanksgiving turns into a fragrant aroma of hope. If we pay attention in the midst of the disorientation, you'll find cause to find a place to build an altar. You old-timer Christians, you know, four, five, ten years. You old-timer Christians, you know how this happens, right? You know how this very thing comes about, right? You thought you'd never work again when you lost your job or you got fired, and then you started your own company unexpectedly. You couldn't have a child of your own, the two of you, And you were so sad when you found that out. And then you adopted. And it got better. And you thought you were a goner with a heart attack. You flatlined right there in the ER. But you're sitting here now. And you thought no one would would ever love you again. And then you got some friends. And eventually... Somebody fell in love with you. When, you. when you were younger as a Christian, you called it a miracle. But after a while, if you do enough mileage in your Christian life, you just call it God. And you realize all of life is a miracle. Every moment, every day, every sunrise and every sunset, it all belongs. Just like the Psalms say. 1995, I waited on God, disorientation. I was done with seminary, and I was called to start a church. I thought I was supposed to start a church in Las Vegas because it looked easy. 4,000 Southern Californians were exiling or moving. They were equity immigrants, as we called them, because they sold their house for gajillions and moved to Vegas and got made mansions. And and I thought, I'm going to go to Vegas and start a church. I called a pastor out there, and he said, just, it doesn't matter if you do bad church. Just come out here and do church. We need churches. And I thought, well, I could do bad church. And uh, so, you know, I was going to go to Vegas and start a church. Lori and I were going to go there. Besides, that's where all the sinners hang out and have a great time. Uh, I've often wondered over the years, I thought, like, would I be doing those weddings, like, dressed up like Elvis, you know? Oh, well. Uh, And in solitude and loneliness, I waited and waited and waited, and I talked with denominational officials and committee work, and they finally came back a year later and said, well, you can go to Vegas. We're just not going to give you any money. I'm like, okay. You're on your own. And I cried out in my pile of rubble. And then a small little voice came and it said, you know, you can always go to Jackson County. Jackson County. Vegas or Jackson County? (laughs) And and just so you know, here's the real story. I'm from Johnson County, Kansas. (laughs) You know what I mean? So... Now, let me just tell you something about Johnson Countyans. They get over to 350 Highway in Raytown, and they get scared and run home. <laughs> it's, a, it's a scary world going to Missouri, and they're not really quite prepared for it. So they're just going to keep their little Orange County, Johnson County thing going over there. 
last place I had in my mind. And I had to give up control and give up my dream, give up control, mostly give up control, and submit to Jesus. And then came new direction. Just as Jesus taught us, here's the secret right out of Jesus' mouth. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Mark chapter 8, verse 35. You want to win, you lose. Christianity is the only religion in history and in anthropology that is built on this topsy-turvy notion that when you fail, you've won. That when you lose, you win. That when you go to the cross, you resurrect. Here's the spiritual secret that moves us from the rebel to hope. You lose your life, you save it. And this is what Christ followers, this is why Christ followers are the most powerful people on the earth. Because when we win, when we lose, and the rest of the world doesn't get it. And sometimes when Christians forget that and they cave into power, they lose as well. We Christians are most powerful when we fall at the feet of Jesus and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen.